This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today's episode features an urgent issue, the topic of how technology mobilizes disaster relief and how disaster relief aided by technologies is taking place right now in Ukraine. I'm bringing you a conversation with Dov Maisel, the co-founder of the disaster relief organization United Hatsala, which is currently on the ground in Ukraine. Dov Maisel is an innovator, volunteer, and world-renowned expert in disaster management. He has dedicated his life to saving the lives of others. When Dov was nine years old, he was walking home from school when he witnessed a horrific accident in which a six-year-old girl was hit by a bus. No one knew what to do, and he watched as capable adults ran in hysteria, helpless. He decided that he never wanted to be helpless when someone in his vicinity so desperately needed life-saving treatment. By the age of 14, he began volunteering on an ambulance. Dov served as an army medic in the Israeli Defense Force and has served as a combat paramedic in four different wars during his reserve duty in the IDF. After his army service, he began working as an EMT dispatcher and ambulance driver for Israel's ambulance service. In 2006, Dovey helped to co-found United Hatzalah, Israel's first nationwide all-volunteer EMS organization. He invented the technology for United Hatzalah's Uber-like GPS dispatch system, which locates and sends the EMT close to the medical emergency to provide aid. He led the United Hatzalah International Relief Missions in Haiti, Nepal, and in both Houston and Florida in the United States after the devastating hurricanes that decimated the communities there. And he managed the United Hatzalah EMS response teams in Mumbai immediately after the shocking terror attacks that took place there in 2008. He works as the head of international operations of United Hatzalah, which is currently providing critical care and emergency aid in Ukraine. He continues to save lives as volunteer, instructor, and mass casualty incident manager. United Hatzalah is the largest independent, nonprofit, fully volunteer emergency medical service organization providing free emergency medical first response. They have provided critical life-saving care in the wake of devastating disasters in Haiti, Nepal, Houston, Florida, Mumbai, and they are currently on the ground in Ukraine. United Hatzalah's service is available to all people, regardless of race, religion, or national origin. United Hatzalah has more than 6,200 volunteers around the country, available around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Hi, Dovey. Hi, Deb. So, Dovey, I want to just dive right into it. What is United Hatzalah? United Hatzalah is a um, community-based volunteer organization which has grown to become Israel's largest volunteer EMS service which is comprised of all the different walks of life of Israeli society, sharing one common goal of saving lives and getting to any person in any emergency within 90 seconds. I know that you have a really strong personal connection to the idea of providing emergency immediate care forged at a very young age, but I wanted to ask you to tell that story for our listeners. Maybe I'll go back a little bit to, to, to what, what we are, I mean, because it relates maybe to the first question, and that is, uh, what United Hatzalah is, is 6,500 volunteers throughout Israel. 
men and women that each carry a story that uh, made them come out of their comfort zone, go out and get trained and join this amazing community-based movement of, of life-saving. And my story actually goes back to when I was um, eight years old, nine years old. I was in third grade. And when I left school one day, I was waiting at the bus stop and I saw, you know, I, I wasn't really, really good at school. Um, so I was thinking of how I'm going to go meet my friends in the afternoon rather than doing my homework. But I was sitting at the at the bus stop in Jerusalem and, and, and staring at this little girl that was in the playground right behind the right behind the bus stop. And she suddenly comes running out of the playground, runs across the sidewalk and into the street. And right in front of my eyes, I see this uh, this little she couldn't have been more than six years old girl get hit by a bus. And this was back in the early 80s. And I, I just remember the shock, even now when I'm telling the story, I have goosebumps. I, I remember the shock and people all around just screaming, yelling. Nobody's even going over the little girl. She's just lying on the ground, not not moving. And and people are screaming to the buildings next door to call for an ambulance and, and whatnot. There weren't cell phones back then. And I, I just remember this this drama there. Nobody knows what to do. I, I just got up. I mean, the only thing I could do is I just ran away. I ran home. I'm a third, third grader. And I ran home and I didn't sleep that night. And the next day when I came to school, I obviously didn't say anything to my parents or anything. I was just totally shocked. And the next day when I came to school, they gathered us in the gym and they were talking to us. And in retrospective, I, I can understand that there were social workers and whatnot there because it turns out that this little girl was the first grader in my school. And and she didn't survive this accident. I, I actually watched this disaster in front of my eyes. And I, I, I pledged that day that I, I, when I grow up, I'm going to do something that, that I won't be helpless. And, and the years went by, and I, obviously I decided I'll become a doctor, but I didn't contemplate how much uh, studying it actually requires to be a doctor. But when I was about 14, I was actually on my first ambulance ride with friend Ellie. Um, he brought me on the ambulance and I was just mesmerized. And I was, I understood at that moment, that this is my calling. This is what I need to do. It all came back to me at that moment, that accident. And I said, this is what I need to do. And from the age of 14 until now, just a few years later, this is what I've been doing basically my whole life. And that's what was also the seeds of what led me to, to, to leave the professional EMS uh, services that I worked for for many years and start this organization with Ellie, understanding that every second counts and it's power of community that can make a difference. Can you share a little bit about United Hatzalah's ethic? I know that the ethic is fairly unique and that ethic has to do with providing emergency care to anyone in need, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, citizenship, or ability to pay. I'm not sure that our listeners in the United States at least fully appreciate why this is such an exceptional ethic. How did United Hatzalah come to the decision to center its work around this ethic of providing emergency care to those in need, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, citizenship, ability to pay? And what does this ethic mean in the Middle East or where you are right now in Ukraine or where you were in Haiti? places where United Hatzalah has worked or continues to work? So I, I think the ethic it comes out of maybe the value of, of, of love your neighbor, first of all. And that is understanding that we can't stand aside and watch somebody in need. And I think this goes across the board through any religion. Uh, is the values of every religion is, is, first of all, care about other people. And, and, and in Israel which is in the heart of the Middle East, obviously, but, but Israel is a country that is comprised of such a diverse community in Israel with the Jews and Muslims and Christians 
and, and, and so many different cultures. And, 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 and I think that, that that's Israeli society and understanding, I mean, working for the government services, working for the paid services over the years of my professional career, when I started out, I understood that, that things need to go beyond. And, and just as anyone and anyone who does either paramedics course uh, back in the day or doctors, they, we all take the oath of treating everyone and anyone regardless of religion or race. And, and I think that's the most basic value. And, and as such, it's not only the people treating it, getting treated, it's also the people treating themselves. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this organization is that it's comprised of 6,500 volunteers. None of them get paid a dime. These are men and women, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and everyone, a cross-section of Israeli society, all taking part in this community-empowered movement that's all about saving lives. This is a show about ethics and technology. We've talked a little bit about the ethics part. How is tech relevant to United Hatzalah's work? And why is technology such an important part of United Hatzalah's ethic? What is at stake tech-wise? So I think everything in this world today has to do with technology. I mean, if uh, <laughs> I mean, can, can we imagine ourselves doing anything without technology today? Can we imagine ourselves treating patients without technology? I think it's all part of our uh, evolution of, of medical treatment all goes back also to, to technology that can support this effort. Now, where does it hit us? If I go back to 2000 and maybe 2006, 2005, when I was uh, a, par- a young paramedic, younger paramedic, not young paramedic, a younger paramedic, and I was on a holiday in the southern uh, city in Israel called Eilat, which is our like Miami Beach uh, of Israel, and we're a bunch of paramedics there in a hotel there, and we're sitting in the dining room, and suddenly we see an ambulance team. Now we're based in Jerusalem, but we were on holiday. This is about 300 miles away, and and back in the day we had beepers. And my beepers would only transmit messages of the emergencies that are happening in Jerusalem. Except we're sitting in the dining room and suddenly we see an ambulance team rush through the lobby. You know, colleagues of ours from a lot. Obviously, like good paramedics, we run after them. And we get down to the pool where a person drowned there and they started CPR. Now, we were at the hotel. We could have been one minute away. We could have maybe responded much, much faster. But lack of technology didn't enable us to, to, to know about this person who drowned. Except one thing, back then in 2005, I think it was, they came out, Nokia came out with the uh, with their phone. It was a slider phone that had a GPS component on it. And when you press that GPS button, absolutely nothing happened. It would just show you coordinates. But it occurred to me, if we could take these coordinates and create a system, a technological system, which will identify the, the, the person, where he is in regards to an emergency, then forget about regions, forget about stations, forget about uh, about how we looked at emergency response until then. We could leverage power of people that have training, that have uh, capabilities, and alert them. You might all know this today as like Uber or Lyft or, or, or ordering pizza online from the nearest by pizza shop. Everything is geolocation today. And and back then in 2005, 2006, we, we went out and, and invented the first Uber of, of life-saving based off of not even smartphones. This was running Symbian and, and Java on, on, on Nextels and things like that. But this was the, the first living model of these. And, and we understood that technology will be the game changer for saving lives on so many levels. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this show uh, urgently, we are recording on a Thursday with a Friday date for distribution. 
Um, that is not my usual production schedule. But one of the reasons that I wanted to do the show as quickly as possible is that United Hatsala is currently on the ground in Ukraine. Today, for listeners listening to this uh, maybe later, today is April 21st in 2022. And as our listeners may know, the situation in Ukraine is dire. It is one of horrific violence, and it's getting worse as the Russian perpetration of this war escalates. Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on on the ground? Um, yeah. So, so first of all, United Hatzalah is an organization that operates in Israel, uh, first and foremost. But, but when we look about world events happening around us, whether it's natural disasters or wars or things like that, obviously we understand we can't stand aside and we have to take part. And, and eight, today, eight weeks ago today, was the Russian invasion into Ukraine, and then we immediately understood that that there is immediate need. Back then, eight weeks ago, it was helping, it was more about helping refugees coming out of Ukraine. And over time, we understood that as the refugees numbers started dropping and people leaving Ukraine and people getting settled, whether in Europe or in Israel or in other places, our, our primary mission should be inside Ukraine itself. And in Ukraine, what's happening now is we have ambulances operating on, on the ground in Ukraine doing uh, rescues of injured and ill and critically ill patients from different uh, cities, from uh, Dnieper uh, in the south, uh, southeast, and and uh, and uh, Odessa, Kiev, and others, to either western Ukraine or out of Ukraine totally to Poland, Germany, Romania, and other surrounding countries, and even emergency flights out to Israel, etc., for people to get advanced care. That's on the one one uh, one hand. The second hand there is the humanitarian crisis that's happening inside Ukraine, and we understood that we're going to need to go beyond our life-saving efforts in the classic form of, you know, paramedics, EMTs, and doctors. But but the, the, the immediate need down there is really also getting medical supplies to the hospitals, medication, medical supplies, and of course, food. So we actually started a uh, an airlift of uh, cargo planes via Moldova and Slovakia and getting these essential uh, needs of food, medication, and, and medical supplies into Ukraine, where we opened up logistical centers and a supply chain with distribution throughout Ukraine from the south, east, and north, really to all of the hospitals and communities around there, providing them with these immediate needs. And, uh, well, we never imagined eight weeks ago that it'll be eight weeks, and we never performed such an operation outside of Israel on, on scale and over such a lengthy period of time. But where we understand clearly now that we're going to need to stay there as long as we can and continue operating and supporting these uh, these people there that really need the help. Can you can you talk about some of the volunteers who are on the ground in Ukraine? What led them to want to go to Ukraine specifically, and uh, what what are they seeing? What are they reporting back? I think what's uh, pushing them to volunteer on the ground is what pushes them to leave their house at two in the morning on a rainy night to help a, a, a person, an elderly woman that fell, that fell in her house. It really is that, that purpose of, of we can make the difference. Somebody needs the help, we'll go and do it. And it doesn't matter if it's down the block or if it's another country. And, and originally, we had a core of volunteers operating in Ukraine throughout the year, in Odessa, in uh, Uman, and in Kiev. But these are just like, you know, a few dozen volunteers, which some of them fled the country with their families and some stayed to, to, to help and support there. And we understood that from them primarily that the need was so great. And, and what can I say? Maybe it's just a bunch of Israeli Meshuganers that, that just want to get out and help and don't see the fear. Well, they have fear. Everyone, we're all human. 
but understanding that the mission and, and the purpose there is is much greater. And we literally have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers over the past eight weeks and rotations going in and out and operating on the ground there. And the experience, what they're sharing of their experiences there is these are these are things that will be going with them for the rest of their lives. I mean, as someone who's been in Nepal and Haiti and, and many disasters around the world, I know what these things affect you, but here it's very, very different. That leads me to a question that I want to ask because you have been in Nepal and you've been in Haiti. I realize it's a bit of a silly question on the surface of it because, of course, right now all eyes are on Ukraine. All disaster relief is in some way, I think, mobilized toward Ukraine. But I want to ask the question anyway, why Ukraine? How does United Hatzalah make decisions about where to provide aid and support? I mean, there are disasters all around the world. This is a globalized society. We are aware of the disasters around the world that are taking place. So what was it about Ukraine that led you to decide to put your volunteers and your resources there? So it's a very good question. There are disasters, and we do we do partake in in a lot of these disasters. Um, obviously, if it's a disaster that's a, that's you know something that's manageable by the local country government or city, then then we really have no added value, and we won't come. However, we look at disasters with with my experience over the years, um, and and we try to uh, assess the the need out there, and if the need is 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 imminent, and 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 there's a point to come and we can be of added value, then we will go. And it doesn't matter where it is. Um, and Ukraine is no different. <laughs> on the contrary, Ukraine is on scale, the greatest event of, of modern history. I think we're talking about more than 5 million um, uh, refugees that, uh, that uh, um, fled the country. We're talking about another 10 or 15 million um, displaced people within their country that moved west um, this is a humanitarian catastrophe um, that, that cannot be compared to anything in any event. And there's no way that us, as, as, as people of Israel, can stand aside and say, no, we, we, we won't come and help. Um, it's, I think, one of our core values of our, uh, of our society, of, of, of just general society today. It's the human thing to do. Are there ways in which United Hatzalah's work is unique in Ukraine? What does United Hatzalah do there that other organizations can't or aren't doing? So I'll say that there are a lot of organizations that are doing a lot of work in the country surrounding Ukraine. I mean, the country isn't overloaded with organizations operating on the ground inside Ukraine. The resources there are more limited. There's much more support once you've crossed the border. Inside Ukraine, we see, like I said, the greatest need there is evacuations. We're doing ambulance rides, or what we do back in Israel. Ambulance transports to, to advanced care, except it's not a 10-minute transport. It's a 16-hour transport. And, and, and we're talking about getting supplies to the hospitals. We're talking about getting food to communities there. And yes, there are other organizations, absolutely. But but still, put all of these organizations together, it's still not enough. The disaster is really that big. In addition to being one of United Hatzalah's co-founders, you are the VP of operations for United Hatzalah. What does organizing an aid mission such as the one in Ukraine look like logistically, operationally, technically? What technologies or strategies or people do you depend on? Can you walk us through what that looks like? Wow. Um, yeah, well, first of all, we never expected anything of this magnitude or scale. So when it started off eight weeks ago, we just started with a GO team of 15 people. 
with some uh, basic equipment, basic uh, necessities to go out there and do an assessment of the situation, obviously supplying them with uh, satellite uh, communications, different packages of data, and, and, and whatever, whatever gadget we could get our hands on will enable them to operate in the field with nothing with them to get the picture to our uh, emergency operations center on the back end back here in Israel at the time was really what we provided them with. And following that, I mean, all of our teams out there are equipped with whether it's communication devices, uh, multi-layer communication devices, from the simplest walkie-talkie point to point where you have no reception to satellite communications, data, and obviously phone uh, phone communications, uh, geolocating every one of the teams at every given moment. The situation there is difficult. There are curfews there. The transports are through hot zones. And, and it requires a massive technological back end to support this. Some we can uh, share, like I was sharing, and some we can less share about, but are used out there. Whatever can get our teams in and out purely and get the people to, to definitive care. And obviously on the logistical side, beyond technology, we're talking about a whole supply chain that, that we uh, put down infrastructure for over the, the past two months of cargo planes, with equipment and medical supplies and, and getting them through borders from Slovakia into Ukraine, from Moldova into Ukraine, ground transportation and distribution. It wasn't planned from day one. This was all on the go. This is literally everyday reassessments and, and, and decisions for the days to come. And from one week to another on, on how we're going to look at this uh, at this mission as the objective changes. What kinds of reassessments are you making? What kinds of things do you see that surprise you that require you to go back, reassess, change plans, change directions, change technologies? So, so it's, it's a good question because what it is at the beginning, the major challenge was dealing with refugees that were pouring over the borders, whether into Poland or into Moldova, into the other surrounding countries. And we focused on Moldova because Moldova is not an e- a European Union country. So was not getting the support from the European Union, and there, were, there weren't as many NGOs, non-government organizations operating on the ground there. So we, we understood that there the, the need was greatest. And, and that was the primary goal, is dealing with thousands and thousands of refugees coming into the country um, from, from providing them with, uh, with shelter and then opening up a massive soup kitchen that served at the peak uh, six 7,000 meals a day. And from there on to coordinate rescue flights. Of, of, of patients and, and, and refugee flights out. We were focusing, obviously, on flying people out to Israel, and we flew over 2,500 people to Israel on these refugee flights. And, and you know, just over time, we see that the number of refugees is, is dropping, and the need inside Ukraine is growing. So we're modifying the, the mission as we go along. Currently, at the moment, we're focusing on operations inside Ukraine, medical, humanitarian, and, of course, the logistical supply of, of medicine, medical supplies, and, and food for the different uh, cities in Ukraine. And, and, and we're constantly monitoring and seeing, I mean, everything can change. I mean, today's Thursday. We don't know if, if suddenly Odessa and, and, and Dnieper are going to be attacked over the weekend or beginning of the week, then this might shift the whole program again back to add on additional uh, volunteers to support the, the mass refugee flee that will happen again. If, if the south uh, south and southwest part of the country will be uh, bombarded. So so this these are sort of reassessments that we're doing as we go along. Are you working with or coordinating with other groups on the ground there? I mean, how does a disaster relief effort with so many moving parts to begin with and a 
multitude, I would imagine, of different aid-providing organizations also moving themselves and mobilizing their work and their forces, their technologies on the ground, provide some sort of coherent relief response? Or is it incoherent in, in your view? How does coordination work? if it works at all? So it works partially. First of all, there's enough work for everyone. That's That, that makes it easier maybe at a certain point. I don't know if that doesn't sound so good, but, but there really is work for everyone. However, there is coordination between the different agencies, uh, be it from roundtable discussions to uh, some uh, technological platforms. Monday, for example, software of Monday, uh, opened up, for example, to all NGOs operating with anything to do with Ukraine as a platform that, that can enable planning and executing the, the, the missions on the ground. But at the end of the day, it really is that EOC on the ground in the tent of representatives from different organizations at the different missions, coordinating and, 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 and executing from there uh, operations inside. Are there any recent developments or things that you're anticipating that United Hatzalah or other organizations will need? What kind of need are you seeing come up or arise? So the need right now is really support of medical supplies, medication, and food to get into Ukraine. That's that's the most important. Supplying the hospitals there with uh, equipment is, is the most basic. Next is food, like I said. And and obviously we have our emergency plan for what happens if, if the South is, a, is, is struck again or Kiev is struck again significantly. And, and this will change the whole uh, outcome again. And, and we'll need support with, with getting people out of the country again. So it really is, primarily now is really food and medication and medical supplies to get into the, into the hospitals and communities inside Ukraine. I think working as long as I have in the context of human rights, one of the things that I see as a consistent, inevitable trend is disaster fatigue, meaning that folks keep their eye on this because of the alarm and shock for the first, say, month or two, and they donate for the first month or two. And then as the war continues and we become a little bit inured to it as the shock wears off, donations, attention recedes into the background. This is something that is at least as old as our global media circuits of the 1945 era. How will United Hatzalah and other organizations sustain engagement as this war continues to go on, as you said, much longer than you had anticipated? So, so it, it, it's a major challenge. It is a major challenge, and, and we're aware of it, and we're trying to focus on, on preparing our long, longer-term plan. Not long-term, longer-term plan, and also working with the donors and the donor circles of, of different communities, etc., to understand that this is not probably not going to end now. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, like we said, like you said, as soon as the media is not interested anymore as, as much, then then there's fatigue of the donors. But it's our job to really sort of work harder and get out there and, 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 and tell people this is not over. The need is still great and, 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 and keep pushing it. To say that we'll succeed, 100% probably not. And we'll do the best that we can with the resources that we have. But if, 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 if the fatigue and if this war will just go on for, for, for that long, and, and please God, it won't, for the people of Ukraine, I pray that it won't, then th- there might be a, 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 a bigger problem. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other places that United Hatzalah has provided relief and aid? Haiti, for example, the United States in the context of the post-hurricane disasters in Florida and elsewhere. Can you can you say a little bit about what those rescue operations have looked like? 
what the disaster relief has looked like? Yeah. So, so like I said, whenever a disaster strikes, we, we look at it and try to assess the, the, the needs out there. And, and the needs are based off of the capabilities of the hosting country or community and their capabilities. Meaning, you can't compare Haiti to, to, to South Florida hurricanes. In South Florida, you don't really need, I don't need to send paramedics and EMTs because South Florida has plenty of paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters. So my added value there would probably be my uh, my missing persons unit and searching and uh, of, of, of missing persons and, and, and maybe the psychotrauma unit, which is a very unique unit, which came very handy, for example, in the Champlain Towers collapse just last year in South Florida, where obviously there's plenty of rescue workers on the ground, but our psychotrauma unit is something that is really unique and doesn't exist in the States. And we were able to send them out and operate on the ground there with the families and the reunification centers, with the first responders, with the firefighters that were working on the ground and needed the the psychotrauma therapy from our unique unit. However, if you look at Haiti, which is a, a, a it was a disaster of one of the largest disasters of the past uh, few decades in, in modern history, then yes, there there was need for paramedics, doctors, EMTs, rescue workers, uh, search and rescue, and 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 the full cavalry. So it really is about trying to fit the, the response, uh, the, the, to fit the team uh, with the appropriate response for the for the need on the ground. Same goes for Nepal. At Nepal, five, year, five years ago, I think it was, in the earthquake in Nepal in Kathmandu, we went out with a team of 25 search and rescue paramedics, doctors, EMTs, and set up field hospitals there um, in the mountains surrounding Kathmandu. Uh, providing the, the the treatment for the people of the villages that were destroyed there, so it really is about what we can bring of added value. We're not we're not disaster tourists, put it that way. We try to be useful. Can, can you actually give us a definition of what you mean by disaster tourists? Yes, unfortunately, and we see this in Ukraine now as well. There's a term called disaster tourism, and that is people who chase disasters around the world just to see them. Some of them, I, some of them, and I would say this maybe in a naive way, really just come to see the disaster and some come to leverage it for different con missions and, and fundraising operations for, for, for things that aren't really happening, just, uh, you know, using the opportunity. Unfortunately, those are the bad people. Okay. But, but disaster tourists, those who just chase the disasters, just really get in the way. But you can't stop them because it really happens in every disaster in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that on a certain level, especially in our kind of uh, hyper-visual environment where where visual culture is kind of a currency, and especially as images circulate as quickly and as easily as they do on our social media ecology, spectacle sells, spectacle compels, spectacle attracts, and what more spectacle could you find than the spectacle of disaster. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about actually the technology of social media and the technologies of media distribution and how that plays a role in thinking about disaster relief, if you see it playing a role at all. It plays a major role on so many levels. On the most basic level that we all know and use is, is really to get the word out there. And this is, first of all, people seeing the images coming out of there um, pushes them to want to help, first of all. And, 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 that, and that's a good thing. 
Uh, it really gets people moving uncomfortably in their seat and pushing them out of their comfort zone to come out. And that's maybe connects to one of the earlier questions you asked me about how do we get the volunteers to actually get out there is they see these images and they want to help. That's number one. Number two is for fundraising purposes and, and supporting this mission. If we have the Michiganers uh, and the volunteers that want to go out there and want to support, we are going to need funds to do this. And, and today using social media is probably the strongest uh, medium in order to get out there and uh, show the work that is being done on the ground, not for bragging purposes, rather for getting people involved. And, and not everyone's cut out for jumping on the plane and going into the war zone, um, but they do want to help and they do want to make an impact. And if you can do that financially, then they're taking part. I say it's it's always a partnership between between the people supporting and, and those on the ground um, doing the, the legwork. So that's number two. Number three is we found that in this war, more than any other disaster uh, in the past, is social media is being used to call out for help. We have been reached out, our social media of United Hatzalah has been reached out by thousands of, whether it was hospitals seeking or seeking medication and medical supplies, communities reaching out for food, people reaching out to get rescued from shelters in different cities uh, that were bombarded. and we tripled or quadrupled our team on social media in response to these uh, to these people uh, reaching out to do like a due diligence of, uh, of the people reaching out and we performed I would say hundreds of rescues that literally came from social media and we got those rescues and I'm talking about 16 hour rescues 24 hour rescues of, 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 of ambulances and people on the ground and militias there that paid off in order to, to, to protect the teams that were going in and out. And these all came from social media. And I think this is unlike any other event in history, social media was used here to rescue. It occurs to me that one thing that United Hatzalah as an organization shares with social media is the kind of decentralization from a governing authority. So for example, United Hatzalah works independent of any kind of federal mandate or federal funds or national fund coming in. I would imagine that you're coordinating with the Ukrainian authorities on, on some levels, but certainly this is a separate organization that is not in a sense wedded to a outcome of a national organization or a nationally uh, authorized form. Social media does somewhat of the same work and works by the same kind of logic and strategy of a people's organization or people's group moving without authorization by a central organizing governmental agency. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how disaster relief has changed as social media has changed the kind of economy of response and the, the economy of how people make decisions about, about how to mobilize in the context of something as major as a kind of uh, national crisis? I would say that social media has a huge impact because because it also pushes people to do things where in the past they wouldn't have because simply it's not visualized and it's not publicized. You only had the regular mainstream media news and if that reporter saw it, then then he got it. And if not, then, then nobody knew about it. Today, everything is out there from good to bad. It's all out there and, 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 and it, it shapes the way governments respond in general and as, as a non-government organization and as, as a humanitarian relief organization, as an emergency response organization, even more because it enables us, like you said earlier, we're not obligated to anyone sending us or dispatching us. If we get people reaching out for help, it enables us 
today, as opposed to any other disaster in the world, to create a map that has pinpoints on it of where people are that need help immediately without needing to call any sort of central number or anyone deciding for you, will you be rescued or not? I mean, at the end of the day, we can't rescue everyone. We will do our best to get to as many as we can, but at least we can get, you know, by the simple WhatsApp. I mean, this war has been our operations on the ground at the end of the day with all of the technology that we had out there. This whole thing is being run on WhatsApp and, and reaching out to people that are afraid to talk on the phone because they're afraid that their phones are monitored, the phone calls from the towers. So they're, they're WhatsApping and you get their, their pinned location, just like share, share location and live location and rescuing people out, running out of the cities to the fields outside the city with live location on WhatsApp and having a car drive up to them in the middle of the night and pick them up in the middle of a field outside of Mariupol is things that, that, that could never be done in the past. And it really changed the whole response mechanism. And we were able to save, I would say that in this war, more people were saved because of social media and technology than in any other war in the past ever. I want to just switch gears a little bit and, and talk to you about some of the technological innovations that you're responsible for. In addition to providing medical aid and coordinating the work of United Hatsalah, you also have a background in tech innovation. You've invented a number of medical technologies. You have a vast knowledge of the medical service world, and you have experience in innovative thinking and bringing new and advanced life-saving technologies to the market. What are some of the more important emerging technologies that are helping to provide emergency medical aid? I mean, you talked a little bit about social media. Are there other technologies that you think are particularly important? Well, I, I think that, that looking at everything about technology today is, is really, maybe because my mind is a little bit warped and I don't come from a business perspective. I come from, from trying to develop solutions for real problems. I'm not inventing things that then I'll go out and look for the problem to solve. And back in the day, I was inventing medical devices because I simply needed them in the field as a, as a paramedic or as a, a combat medic in, in the IDF. I needed certain devices that simply didn't exist in, in the size or form that can be used in the field. So I went out and invented them. And same went for technology, like that story I was telling you about that hotel. This was, I don't know, 20, 18 years ago or, or 16 years ago, is, is understanding that we have challenges and technology exists. All we got to do is think how to connect the dots and make things work. And if I was thinking more from a business perspective, I'd be a billionaire today because I, in, in essence, invented Uber back in 06 before they even invented the iPhone. But I wasn't thinking about writing patents. I was thinking about how can we reach that patient faster? And if we can use that network of people and use that technology, then same goes for that. And, and, and as we speak today, I mean, except for the past two months of being fully uh, engrossed in this war, we're constantly thinking about how to integrate technologies because there are so many things out there, each serving a certain purpose. And, 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 and part of our mission in Naratala is, is, is creating integrations between different pieces of technology into a, a different piece that will be a, a, a super responder. You can use those smart glasses and, and augmented reality, mixed reality. It's a combination of all of these. If I can combine them now into the helmets of my my uh, my motorcycle uh, paramedics, and 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 I can transmit to the EOC, I can I can treat the patient better, and that can feed into my 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 CAD system that that that, that the dispatcher can then connect to my medical control, and and so many different pieces out there. If we can integrate them with one another, and we're constantly working on that, it's not even invent new things; it's to integrate between existing 
technologies take better technology. I was having a conversation on last week's show with a CEO of a company that uses many of the same technologies that we use in Silicon Valley to develop life-sustaining or really important interventions that provide life preserving or elevating means to developing countries. And, you know, I asked him a question about the ways in which he's developing, you know, technologies that will help people in India have drinking water every day versus the kind of innovations that I see coming out of Silicon Valley en masse that will allow you to get a sandwich quicker than you would already be able to get it in Silicon Valley. It's all guess, about it's all about it's all about the basic needs. <laughs> yeah. What what we mean when we say a basic need changes. If exactly. you are in Ukraine, a basic need is very different than what somebody in Silicon Valley might see as a basic need, which is you know, maybe a little bit of uh, faster upload speeds or something like that. Which is something I'm guilty of as well. It annoys me to no end that it will take me a very long time to upload this podcast uh, to the distributing website. Of course, that is not the same irritation, I would imagine, that uh, somebody at United Hatsala uh, working in Ukraine experiences when they don't have a technology that might be able to locate somebody a little bit quicker. So I recognize that there's a difference. But I guess the question here has to do with the extent to which when you're inventing a technology, you know, as you talked about, you don't have a kind of business oriented impetus for developing it. You rather are thinking about the intention of the technology that you build toward its end as a life-saving measure. In Silicon Valley, I think that there is a tendency to think that you can either do good or do well, meaning that you can either succeed financially in terms of the success and profitability of your company, or you can do something for good. I wonder about how the motivation behind the creation of a technology determines the outcome of the technology. So I guess like the, the larger question is that, you know, recognizing that you use a lot of the same technologies that big tech uses in your work and recognizing that you use them for good in the service of life sustaining measures and strategies. What advice would you have for technologists who want to have an ethical use for technology at the core at the center of their work what would you tell them about what it looks like as a inventor as somebody who you know runs the innovation process and uh, runs a runs an organization or a company about um, what an ethical use of technology or an outcome of technological production requires or what it looks like I think the goodness in the mission is the most important thing is, is, is yes you can be inventing a technology but I, I think by ethic, it really needs to be meant for good, meant for, for I mean, the purpose should be a purpose of, of making change that builds, I don't, I don't want to sound cliche, but builds a better world, whether it's in the mission of saving lives, whether it's in the mission of, of preserving life, whether it's in, 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 in making life better. I, I think that, that once a company makes its mission, a mission of goodness, then they'll be much more successful. Yes, I know that that in reality, any technology can be taken anywhere afterwards and can be fitted also for, for, for other purposes. We can see these great technologies that are saving lives in Ukraine are killing people on the other side. You know, I mean, this is, unfortunately, social media, which we were just talking about, is, is, is really saving lives on, on one side and on the other side is feeding a lot of lies and, 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 and disinformation and, and, and fake news. But... I think, I, I honestly believe that in any innovation, if the company sees the values of the company need to be 
in the right place. And if the value is in the right place, the development will be will be always done in a positive way, and 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 we'll we'll all benefit from it. And I'm sure the company will benefit from it at the, at, at the end of the day, financially as well. I want to talk a little bit about the direction that you were taking the question about social media. You talk a lot about mobilizing community power to save lives. How do you do that? Is it just social media? Are there other strategies that you use? What changes about emergency medical care when you think about the possibility that we can mobilize a community to help rather than relying solely on authorities, healthcare officials, practitioners? Are there risks to having a community-driven approach to life-saving medical aid as well? So I, I, I honestly have to say it can't only be social media. It can't only be technology because at the end of the day, you need people on the ground. And when I look at my at, at our 6,500 volunteers, these are people who simply care. At the end of the day, they're, they're not just, you know, with their phone in their hand and, and clicking away at the keyboard. They need to get out of the house at two in the morning and help grandma that fell on the floor on a rainy night. And they need to get out there. It's really that responsibility, that communal responsibility of caring for other people. Yes, social media is a tool. It's a tool that helps amplify what they're doing in the community in order to recruit additional people. It amplifies what they're doing in the community so that when we need some sort of food drive in the community for, for, for a different purpose, then, then they recognize these people that they meet at the supermarket, they meet at the pharmacy, they meet at the movie theater, and they see them, they identify them as the good people, the superheroes of the neighborhood. And when they reach out via their social media for whatever it is, a food drive or a or a blood drive or, or whatever it is, then it will actually get the other people to move out of their comfort zone and take real action and not just stay behind the keyboard. And in order to keep those volunteers engaged, it's not only social media. No, it's a lot of camaraderie. It's a lot of team building. It's a lot of social gatherings and meetings and, and, and creating that elite unit sort of feeling amongst them, which drives them. And then from there, it reflects and circles inside the community through social media. What are some of the ethical challenges that come up for you in using technologies to save lives? How does United Hatzala go about making decisions, for example, about the use of those technologies, whether we're talking about the relationship between geolocation and the need for privacy, the use of data, or decisions about which lives to save when confronted with more need than you think you can provide support for? Wow, that's that's a constant challenge. First of all, for anything that has to do with the medical side and the patients, so where you know, like, what's the equivalent of a HIPAA compliant um, on, on the American side for for confidentiality on on the medical and and personal information of the patients, of course. On the volunteers level, it's it's a little bit more complicated because, like we said, geolocation. The whole idea of of dispatching these volunteers is based upon their location. And it's not solely uh, used only on the back end of the technology, but our volunteers actually waive their privacy and, and big brother, so to speak, of, of national dispatch can actually see them at any given time. And this requires a lot of, on the ethical side, a lot of responsibility of our dispatchers and staff to, you know, keep their privacy, meaning we're not, no, no one will ever disclose a location of anyone that is seen on the screen. For, for even if it's their spouse calling or family member, or whatever, they'll never say where they are on the screen, things like that. This is an ongoing challenge. There's no question. And as technology evolves and becomes more accurate and we have more tools and cameras and, and, and beyond the location, we've got, you know, you know, you've got like, like visual and you've got all sorts of other pieces of technology there. We need to be much more careful and much more cautious about, about how we use that. It is a constant challenge and, and the internal debate on, 
and how we continue moving forward with this. We, we try to be as optimized as we can, but there's no 100%. One final question. What's next for United Hatzalah in Ukraine and elsewhere? How can people help? First of all, what's next for United Hatzalah back in Israel is our regular day-to-day is responding to over 2,000 emergencies every single day, heart attacks, choking kids, cardiac arrests, and, 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 and you know your regular emergencies every day that are responded to over 2,000 a day. Um, in Ukraine, we're focusing now on, on, on like I said, uh, rescue missions inside Ukraine and supply chain of food, medication, medical supplies to the hospitals inside Ukraine and the community spread out there. And, and I guess, you know, like a batter will stand there and hit whatever's thrown at us and, and try to respond as best as we can. And how, how to help? Any, anyone can help. If, if I was able to inspire one person here to go to israelrescue.org and get online and help and support, that, that would really be amazing and, and give us the, the, the power to continue doing this work on the ground in Ukraine and Israel and in other places where we're trying to help people, regardless of religion or race. Thank you very much, Shelby. My pleasure.